Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome. This is Unheard. I'm Freddie Sayers. So you may think of us entirely as a YouTube channel. We are also an online magazine. Go and check it out at Unheard.com. We have fascinating commentary and analysis there every day. And as of this year, we are also a membership. You can join Unheard for the fabulous price of less than a pound a week. I think it's 95p a week and we're throwing in the first two months for free. And for that, not only do you get unlimited reading, you now get to attend live events, discussions with some of the fabulous guests that we have here on the channel, where you can put your own questions to them, you can join the discussion, and you can really be part of our mission, which is to get past the group think, get past the official narrative and find out what's really going on. So thanks for listening. The event you're about to hear was the last Unheard members event. It took place here in London earlier this week in a London pub. And we had a great time with some of our top contributors. Our members were there with us in the room, but they were also from around the world joining in live and taking part in the discussion. If you like the look of it, sign up at unheard.com and we'll make sure to invite you to the next one. We're not aiming today to focus on so much the practical things, which I guess I talked about quite a lot already, you know, people working from home more or whether they're enjoying um, baking bread or those kinds of things, um, important though they are. And we're not actually going to be relitigating the scientific controversies today. Um, so if you came with sort of gloves on for a real Barney about the R rate or uh, something like that, I'm afraid, important though that is too, uh, we're not really planning to focus on that. Um, the idea is more to just reflect on the momentous period that hopefully is now passing. Um, it's been 15 months since we were able to gather. Um, even during the heights of summer last year, you, there weren't parties, there weren't academic conferences. Um, it's been an enormous shift in our way of life. Um, and I, for one, as you might have gathered from some of our um, video content, have been fascinated by those kind of changes. And I, I think, you know, just to share some of my own thoughts just very quickly, you know, the things we have learned about us as a society in the last 15 months, um, the degree of, of compliance, really, which was so unforecast, 
has taken everybody by surprise. It seems almost that once people adjusted, they were quite willing to carry on in this somewhat reduced way of life. Um, the behaviour of our elites, so used to focusing on due process, talking about rights and responsibilities, suddenly in a different kind of fearful dynamic, um, they behaved very differently. And, and there was a sense of pulling rank um, and closing off dissent, which certainly I had never witnessed in my lifetime and I found quite disquieting. Um, internationally, there was a sort of weird sense of international groupthink almost. Those endless charts produced by the Financial Times and those kind of organisations endlessly comparing the performance of countries. It almost felt like um, the countries were mainly interested in their position in various league tables. Um, and you know, internationally, we really learned how, what a small global community we are, where people could fall in, into line and change their whole precedent just within weeks. And actually, countries that took different approaches uh, had a very hard time of it internationally. Um, the East Asian effect, um, whether you focus on China or East Asia more generally, that's been definitely something that I'd love to get into. The sense that although that's been controversial and people have been um, intrigued about China's role in the whole affair, there's also been a, an increase in prestige, I would say, um, about the whole sort of East Asian way of running your society. We now have technocrats uh, here in Western democracies glancing enviously at those more centralized, more technology-enabled uh, countries. And it's going to be fascinating to know from the panel whether they think that's something that's going to stick around. Um, and finally, just from my perspective, we've witnessed the percentage of the population that fundamentally rejects the whole thing, uh, I think, has grown enormously during this pandemic. Just the, the part of our society that is not just slightly mistrustful of authority or elites or government in that normal roll your eyes and be a bit cynical about the motivations of politicians, but actually rejects <coughs> all epistemology uh, and they at some ends, they would be called conspiracy theorists or extremists. But I found that just in day-to-day -day life, you come into contact with people all the time who, who fundamentally mistrust the whole story. And I think the effects of that, whatever your own personal view, we're going to feel for a long time. So that is just to kind of set the, the frame a bit from uh, my perspective to help investigate these themes and many more. I am so uh, delighted that we have a superstar panel for you uh, here today. Mary Harrington, uh, many of you will know from her unheard columns um, on everything from feminism to literature, politics, philosophy. There is nothing she is not an expert on. Um, Aris Rusinos, uh, at the end, um, he is a former war reporter um, who has seen more of northeastern Syria than probably anyone else in the room. Um, Morris may be competing, but... Um, he writes incredible essays for us at Unheard as well. Um, Helen Thompson, here on my left, is a professor of political economy at Clare College, Cambridge. Uh, many of you will know her from the podcast, the incredibly successful podcast she co-hosts with David Runciman, um, also an occasional and very valued contributor at Unheard. And last but not least, Morris Glassman, uh, Lord Glassman, um, the famous founder of the Blue Labour movement, um, and much else, but it might be said that that movement, and there are a couple of people in the room who 
um, have history in it, whilst managing to simultaneously be on the fringes of the Labour Party, it has also been incredibly impactful. Um, you might even say that it, on key points, it's won the argument. So thank you, Morris, for coming as well. So I'd like to just, by way of introducing everybody, sort of go round the uh, panel and ask, reflecting on the past 15 months, this weird period we are hopefully coming out of, I'm going to start with you, Mary. What do you think is the, the change that you have most profoundly noticed? In my personal life, the, the most dramatic impacts I've seen have been on only children some of whom didn't see another child for months on end. I have an only daughter. Um, the effect it had on her was horrendous. Um, she, she, would, she was three at the time. She would climb into bed and turn her face to the wall. You know, I never want to see a depressed three-year-old again. It was, it was horrendous. But thinking more broadly about... Um, one, of the thing, one of the things I think about is the effect that um, the relatively already before lockdown, relatively unfree style of parenting that has become normal has on children growing up under that regime. Um, helicoptered children, I believe. I've seen a couple of studies that show a, a strong correlation between helicopter children um, as young adults and a general acceptance of um, authoritarian politics. So the more, the more micromanaged you are as a child, you know, fa fairly understandably, the more likely you are to accept an authoritarian, um, accept authoritarian re uh, regimes, for example, in university or whatever as an adult. Um, and one of the things that struck me about the last 15 months is that in a sense, we've all been under the helicopter. We've, we've all had an experience of what it's like to be a helicopter child. We've all been micromanaged. We've all had where we can go controlled, um, strictly limited, you know, confined to a narrow area. We've been much more surveilled. You know, we've sort of come, we've become accustomed to far greater levels of surveying one another. Um, in a sense, we've all, be, we've all become helicoptered children. And my fear is that unless we can shake our heads and clear that fog of being helicoptered from from our, our, our entire way of being, then it will be the death knell for a, a general acceptance of the norms of liberal democracy. Um, I'm not optimistic on this front. I think liberal democracy was, was, was getting hollow even before the pandemic happened. I also think that there are a number of people who thoroughly enjoyed um, being able to implement political changes without having to go through a democratic process. You know, I, I was frankly not surprised to see the lockdown extended. I will not be surprised to see it extended again. I think there are a number of people who, well, it's, it makes life a lot easier if you don't have to go through Parliament, let's just say. So, you know, I wouldn't be at all surprised if there are people who'd, who'd really just like to, cap to capitalise on the fact that everyone's become, as it were, sort of numb to the experience of being helicopter children mm. and just if, if, in, effectively continue that as a political regime indefinitely. Well, uh, quite a, a, a punchy start, Mary. Thank you for that. Um, I'm, I'm, there's a lot there that we could pick up on and possibly spend a whole hour talking about, but I just want to introduce everyone else. So. Um, Helen, what's, what would be your kind of summary thought going into this? Well, I, th I think the thing that I spend most time thinking about, which is obviously not quite the same thing, whether it's the most, uh, had the biggest impact, is, is like what the experience says, well, both says about this culture's attitude towards the idea of progress and what it might have done to that idea of progress. Because it seemed to me right from the start, there was 
two or three things really. Um, two of them went in one direction and one of them completely went in the other. And the first went in the direction of a psychic shock, I think, to this, I would call it a quasi-religious faith that dominates our culture in this faith in, in, in progress is that we could stop. Not everybody got to stop. And those of us who got to stop essentially got to be serviced by people who were so indispensable that they had to carry on and couldn't stop. And I think that that was quite a, a difficult thing for people who were used to thinking of themselves as important, actually, to, to, get to, to, to come to terms with, too, that they had to stop and that these people who they thought were less important than them didn't have to stop because they were the, actually the essential ones. But the idea that we could collectively stop, that in some sense most of the world stopped, at least in the early few weeks in March, and that that wasn't something that was supposed to happen and that it could happen, as we thought then at least, because of something to do with nature. I think that that's a, that was a psychic discovery for a, a lot of people because I think that they thought that that wasn't something, the stopping couldn't happen and that nature could do this to us, couldn't happen either. But at the same time, we were having, a, by the end of, or well, through most of March, we were having a financial crisis that I think has been underwritten now in terms of the way in which we remember the early part because in the end the central banks fixed it, so to speak. They didn't fix it, but they stabilised it um, and they threw everything at it and that essentially that they stopped there being a, a financial market crash. It would have made actually coping with this crisis in a practical sense if that hadn't happened, I think, pretty impossible. So there's a kind of like, yes, central banks, the technocrats can, can rescue us, and then at the same time, the whole way of dealing with the crisis was we're going to put our faith in vaccines. And that vaccines had to come because that was the only way in which the decisions that were being made made any sense, even when there wasn't a lot of confidence coming out of the government. I remember like Boris Johnson in sort of early September still saying some quite negative things about, or not negative, pessimistic things about vaccine. Yet the whole policy only made sense if the vaccines were, were going to come. And now that's held up as kind of like science can rescue us. And so we see sort of like this sort of boost to the idea that, that, that science is the, is, is the agent of, of progress. And I think that part of the reason why we see people in some sense all over the place and the stories in which they're telling themselves is because these two things, these two experiences of the, of, the, of the pandemic pull in such different directions. And so people are a bit bewildered. And I think that it's compounded by the sense that if we go back to that year before the pandemic happened, and look at what was going on then, including the commitments governments were making to carbon neutrality, that very faith in progress was being put to the test then as well. And I think that we're just living through um, such deeply unsettling times, and it's quite difficult to know at the moment, I think, whether the pandemic will just seem like one part of a much longer story or whether it actually was something that was its own experience. Great. Um let me come to you, Aris, if I may. What, um, what's, what what's your, would you be your opening thought? Uh, I suppose it's going to be a minority opinion, but uh, I'm actually quite optimistic or cautiously optimistic. I think lockdown itself is fundamentally just a distraction, a minor inconvenience in historical terms, but it's uh, it's been a catalyst which has... It's moving us on to a new era of history, I think. And it's like, as a, as a society, it's, it's like we've gone into a dark tunnel. We've come out in a completely different space. Um, if you think like all of us on this stage here are, you know, the term may have fallen out of fashion, but we're post-liberals in one way or another. 
and all the things we were railing against as a you know small embittered minority a couple of years ago have now become the kind of common sense right so like it took it took the covid experience and it also took the covid experience to kind of awaken people to our uh, societal dependence on China, for example, and manufacturing in China and stuff like that, to really bring that to a head. And the, the kind of things we were talking about and demanding a couple of years ago, like the return of the state, um, you know, the end of this kind of unthinking neoliberal consensus, that's all been accelerated by COVID. So I think COVID is the equivalent of the, the 1973 oil crisis that didn't need to lead to to neoliberalism, there was no kind of logical kind of connection, and yet it did, it ushered it in, right? It was this kind of catalyst event that, that created it. And in the same way, even though COVID itself, there's no logical connection to the end of neoliberalism, it has ushered in this kind of, actually, if you look at what's going on, a very rapid move to this kind of statist, you know, dirigist kind of, um, vast historical pendulum swing in the other direction against all the things that we that we are against so in that sense I'd... which you welcome then you yeah absolutely well we definitely want to come back to that as well um morris yeah so uh thanks freddie and it's it's really wonderful to be here and i'm waving to the people on the screen it's great to to see your faces but above all real physical presence it's really lovely to see everybody um and be here yeah, um, the problem with going last on the panel is is that everybody's kind of taken the thoughts that I'd had before and it kind of expressed them very well. So I'll go in a kind of different way. I, I'm agreeing with with, um, with with those. So when, you know, just let's go back to, you know, January before last, you know, before the virus, you know, when when COVID was, I described it as a, cloud no bigger than a man's hand hovering over Wuhan, you know, and it, what? Um, the, you know, like, stop it, we're an island, the wind will blow, you know, and we'll be fine. Um, I remember really um, thinking that. And and the three features of this new era, Aris, that you're talking about, um, I wrote about this in, in Unheard, was first of all, a greater power for the state in the economy, that that was understood and that that was going to happen. Does anybody remember Brexit? You know, that, that, I mean, that, that's what we went through for, for three years. And, and then there was the, the new class coalition underpinning the, the government. But much more significant for me was that the working class really mattered. That, that they had agency and obviously chose to exert it against my party for completely understandable reasons. And, um, and that was all part of that, you know, that, that was the clarity and, and the meaning of that Brexit interregnum. So a greater role for the state, a greater importance for the working class and the places and the importance of place and the places that they lived became much more significant. So that's where I stumbled into um, lockdown. So I just want to talk about the two shocks that I kind of got um, following that. And everything seemed to, do you remember when we clapped NHS workers? And do you remember when, we, you know, bus drivers were applauded driving out of bus stations? There was this recognition, big class recognition, which became really intense in COVID. The class distinction between people 
who could work from home and people who had to leave home and go to work, um, usually with their hands and usually to help other people. So there was a very strong... So it wasn't the case for huge numbers of people that they could just go on Zoom and do their job. In fact, I've got a theory that if you eliminated everybody who did their work on Zoom, would we notice? <laughs> you know, that, that's... Um, you know, there's a thought. I, I come back from... Um, I went to Parliament today and it was really like a haunted house. It was, it was deserted. It was... You know, so... Mary, would we notice? You know? Um, I mean, it was a dead house. There was, there was no power in it. There was no relationships in it. Um, it was very bad. So, so the two then really big sh is that then, if you remember, this kind of heroes, workers, respect for working class people doing their jobs, got completely blown out by George Floyd, BLM. That that was a big shock. So, um, that was a kind of jolt. That. That, that that was the return of race theory, identity politics, polarization, trial by social media, and that has been an incredibly powerful component of this period. There's been no politics, so all of this went on. Um, so you are know, you in virtual space? Sorry, Freddie, I'm getting to the point. So the two things, <laughs> the two things that really shocked me, well, first of all, was the awareness of the power of China you know, in general, in general, to the possibilities of a society without politics, without democracy, without liberty, <coughs> completely techno, mediated through a screen, where you got kind of awarded or not awarded for how you conformed, for your compliance, really. This was a compliant... A com and I never thought that that was possible, but then I understood our dependency for face masks, for PPE, for, for all the things that we needed. So, whereas before I was celebrating the end of sort of globalization, Aris, and the re-emergence of the... I mean, that first period was brilliant in lockdown when Germany just sealed its borders entirely, something it didn't even do in, in, the, in the Second World War, you know, where it refused to export anything, all the nation-states um, returning. But then the awareness of, of an alternative system that, that was viable, plausible, and powerful um, that was utterly without humanity. And the second thing that really shocked me was that the churches closed down. That for the first time in our history, the church doors were closed, the lights were turned off. I mean, credit to the Catholics, they kept the lights on. You know, the, the priest was allowed to pray in the church, but the Anglicans vacated the premises. And that led me to think, for the first time, well, what would our society be without that? Without, without that? presence of love, compassion, mercy, forgiveness, and then that led me to reflect on the utter lack of forgiveness, mercy, compassion um, that existed on the absence of real, what we're talking about here is real physical presence. The abolition of real physical presence um, scared me and still um, scares me in that way. So those two things, mm. China, the church, and thanks for adding children, because now I've got three CHs mm. in, a, in a row. Um, so the, those so, were the so there's a, there's, what you notice, um, at least I notice here, is that you can have a group of people who sort of think quite similarly about some things, and yet you can come out of an experience like this with a very different sense of whether it's for the positive and whether there's things to be hopeful about or whether it's just scary and bad. Um, and you'll probably be unsurprised to know my selfish 
experience of it was much more the the second. Um, you know, we had you know, even within our office, within this panel, there were people took very divergent views, and there, for some people, there were, there was a sense after that long period of sort of hyper-liberalism that, you know, here somehow we were going to have a mission again. There was going to be something exciting. People were going to get to know their neighbours. The nation state was going to have a voice and somehow this was going to be an exciting moment. Um, and then, you know, other people, and I would put myself in that category, were, were frightened from the beginning about it. Uh, and that if this was going to be the post-liberal world, uh, I want my money, money back. Um, you know, it, it, it's felt... It felt planned and centralised and uh, frightening. Mary, you you sounded a bit more on the sort of frightened end rather than positive end. Is that is that fair? Do you do you feel do you feel any of this positivity that both Aris and Morris are talking about? Well, for what it's worth, I do know my neighbours a lot better after fifteen months of pandemic than I did. Um, we started a WhatsApp group in the early in the early days of the pandemic, which is now mostly about garage clearances and local gossip, which is great. And just the other day, ju just the other day, one of my neighbours who I'd never met before, who borrowed a darning needle off me a few a few weeks ago, came round with her children to visit our chickens. And I thought, you know, if, if it hadn't been for the pandemic, then I wouldn't have made. They they got on great. She, her kids, and my daughter got on great, and that was lovely. So, so you know, it's not it's not totally without people getting to know their neighbours. That is actually a thing. Mm. However, um, while I agree with Aris that the return of the state is definitely a thing, what I what I would add to your observation, mm -hmm. Aris, about the return of the state is that that's been coupled with an annihilation of the Mittelstand, as they call it in German, um, the middle people. So the, the institutions of civic society, as Morris pointed out, they, the, the churches shut their doors. My church still isn't back to what it was before. I don't know if, I don't know if the Anglican church ever will recover from it. Um, I felt personally very betrayed by the way the churches closed their doors. They're deeply upset by it in a way which I still can't fully explain. So, um, so, so the, the middle institutions of society, the self-organising institutions of society, gave way, dissolved. I think some of them will never come back or won't come back in the way they did before. You know, the, the women's institutes, everything that was left over from, you know, the thriving civil, civil society engines of bourgeois democracy, the self-organising little people who come together to create social and cultural value, and they do it in person, and they mostly do it unrecognised, and they do it for each other in places. Um, that was already fraying at the edges under, you know, for all kinds of complicated social and economic reasons. And my, my fear is that having been replaced, as it were, by, by a sort of internet-mediated simulacrum of civil society, largely run from the centre via platforms or sort of pump-primed by the state, that those, those institutions just don't hold a candle. And what we'll end up with is the same, is the sort of internet power laws of 1990, where 1% get most of what's good, you know, the, and the, the next 10% get, you know, some of the good stuff and everybody else just you know, has, the, has the crappy leavings. Mm. My fear is that, that that's now just being rolled out through the entirety of society. So, so yes, I agree that we're seeing the return of the state, but, but, whether, but I'm, I'm, I'm unsure as to how much I like the state that's returning. Sure, I mean, I, th I think that's, I think that's an almost kind of short-termist perspective. Um, <laughs> I, that, sorry, I don't, I don't mean that to sound dismissive. Or, no, 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 <clears throat> you can't. I, you know, like <clears throat> trying to take this kind of you know grand historical view of it. Um, 
like just following up on something uh, Morris said about uh, China and its kind of you know authoritarian effectiveness. Like suddenly we are presented with, you know, there is an alternative, right? There are there are yeah the whole world we've been living in is there is no alternative. Turns out there are alternatives, and in the case of COVID, they turned out in the you know authoritarian brutal way to be far more effective at you know uh, containing it. Eradicating it than, than we are. So suddenly, like the world of ideology has opened up again. It's like there are actually different ideologies, and I think COVID functions as kind of like a dummy war, like a, a kind of you know an initial run through of what a war with China would look like. And guess what? We'd lose, right? That's what it turned out. Like they're far more effective, they're far more organised, all this kind of stuff. And that's that's why all these kind of you know the return of the state, all this kind of stuff. Like, it, it accelerated that that movement that probably would have happened over the course of 10 or 20 years anyway, but it telescoped it into like a tiny kind of period. And all these things, so like, people complained, you know, like, oh, you know, centralization, Facebook's become more important, Amazon's become more important, all this kind of stuff. But it's, it's, it's a case of boiling the frogs quickly rather than slowly. Like, now, we get more people talking about, you know, like, you know, antitrust breaking up the, the vast power of Amazon and Facebook. Like, it's become more politically salient. So I think even in the short term, even in the short term, if, if you know, Jeff Bezos has, you know, become far richer, I think within five years, the effects of this period will have, by highlighting his, you know, disproportionate wealth and power and so on, uh, will work in the direction that we want it to work in. That's that's what I so, think. So let me ask then, if, if effectiveness <laughs> is the goal, and it increasingly t- sounds like that, um, you know, if China, for example, can be more effective at dealing with a pandemic because they can just shut everybody and literally physically seal them in their homes in some cases, because they have such vast centralized power, they can literally turn off society at a moment's notice. If that turns out to be more effective, and there are parallels economically that if, if, if output and effectiveness is, is what we measure success by, is there not a danger, Helen, that we lose other things that are important about what makes our society worth living in? Well, so I don't really sign up to the China's been very effective um, thesis. I mean, Taiwan's been very effective. Singapore's been very effective. I think that you shouldn't trust too much in what's come out about China, mm. about what's actually happened in terms of um, death rates and health of their um, people. And I think that in terms of the competition, or sorry, the way in which the state came back, actually it predates the pandemic. It's really about, it is about China. It's about made in China 2025. It's about, that's what the geo, that, that was already in place before this began. It's geopolitical competition and the state was going to be much more interventionist in industrial capitalism um, in, 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 um, in particular. But I think what's, I mean, taking your thought and going with a slightly different direction with it, Freddie, what's worrying about what's happened to me, as far as I'm concerned, is the ways in which it became impossible, really, to have any political debate about what the... Uh, policy should be towards this illness, after, particularly after the disease, so particularly after the first few um, months. And I understand why that was, because there was clearly a pretty substantial majority that was in favour of, of lockdown um, policies and didn't really want to 
have a debate. And I think that one of the things it should have teaches us how much um, health anxiety that there is in this country and how many people have underlying fears about their health for very understandable reasons. But it meant there wasn't any possibility of having a discussion where we say, okay, we're going to take this short-term risk, this medium-term risk, these long-term risks, and have a, I don't like saying rational discussion, but mm. a reasonable, reasoned discussion about these competing mm. um, risks. And that never took place. And you know, I work in a, in a university, and I was one of the very few people who, in my experience, in in Cambridge in the first term of the academic year, who was willing to, to teach in person. Uh, and there was, you know, extraordinarily, as far as I'm concerned, you know, little concern about the, the students' um, welfare. There was a kind Why? of... Why? There, there was a sort of moral atmosphere that you can dissent from, or what, why was there not more discussion of that? Well, I think there's multiple things going on, and one of them is, is the fact that the, the, the universities financially couldn't afford for the students not to be there. Um, and the government didn't want to take responsibility for bailing the universities out on top of all the other economic decisions that they were making. So the students were sacrificed, in my view, um, to between those, the competing interests of the government and the competing interests of the, the, um, the university. And it wasn't possible to have a discussion. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
Do you think? A discussion about that. And I just think give that as one example, which I saw, like, you know, pretty close up and know how the toll that that took on the students, and it carried on, obviously, through the year. At least the university I was at didn't charge the students for where when they weren't there during the, the third lockdown, which is not true of some universities. Now, it should be possible in a democratic society that we can, we can talk about the fact that these um, decisions that are made, these policies that are pursued, have very different impacts on different mm. groups and there has to be some way of having a contested politics about that and obviously that is not what you're going to get in China so I would never sign up to them getting back to your question really, I would never sign up to that it's all about effectiveness it can all be reduced to one end no that isn't the so point the, and that's illiberal versus liberal isn't it I mean that's, I think is there is there is there a chance of a moment of unanimity here yeah well no that, that's right but whatever you might say about the kind of liberal settlement and there might be lots of things that you don't regret if it is indeed yeah. passing the one good bit was that you were allowed to disagree and that there wasn't this current atmosphere which does seem to have been fast forwarded of 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 discussion forbidden or a sort of sense that dissent is outlawed. Have you noticed that, Morris? Are you? Yeah, it's, it's the, to clarify this thing we're talking about with the state. What was at stake was actually the return of politics. Is that in the previous era it was so constrained by treaty laws and that you couldn't actually do anything. Um, I just want to establish, you know, as that's that that thing. And then we went into went into this, and there was extreme conformity. Of view, but I want to go back to is that this this will play, um, this will play out. We haven't even begun the discussion yet of serious political engagement with uh, the origins of the virus. Um, that's one aspect. The, the the other thing is is to recognise that people are beginning to be aware that science is characterised by different views, by 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 contested um, realities, and that will also. Um, uh, play itself out. So I'm, I'm very sympathetic, actually, to what Harris is saying. Is is that we're only at the beginning of working this through. Um, what what I wanted to, what I, and and a huge amount has accelerated what went what went before. So if if you look, at, for example, um, the new class coalition, the the decline of Labour. This this is all stuff that that was going on on before has continued and intensified. But it's worth saying that there's been no public politics at all. You know, that that, that elimination, um, you, you call it civil society, I would prefer to just call it society. That, that there's no constraint on what's said in virtual reality, and yet people, so a curiously Leninist moment, I think, in, in political history where the, where the political leaders were actually free to to pursue their their politics without any constraints um, on what they did. Do you feel uh, we're going to have a very very brief break in just a minute? <coughs> in Mary's opening remarks, she used the phrase "the death knell of the liberal order," I think, or something like that. It sounds like you think yeah, that might be happening. Thing, yeah, yeah you, right, you think it's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, but you think it's happening. Yeah, 100%. You, so you think it's the death knell of the liberal order, which was sort of beginning to crumble anyway, has been fast forwarded it, by. It, it was it was COVID. rotting and hollow anyway. We no longer live in a liberal democracy. That's my settled view. I think that has pros and cons, but I think that's where we are. And my point was, is, is, uh, is, Morris, is, is the liberal order 
Well, it, it's the status now. of liberty that is the is the central thing. Is is the certainly from my side, I was arguing that we needed to strengthen liberty in this in the in the new order. That liberalism was strangely creating a kind of authoritarianism where you couldn't speak and you couldn't dissent, mm -hmm. and there were huge limits um, on on liberty. And um, what the China model indicated what was was the dangers in in going too far with the post-liberal position that there needed to be an, a, a defense of liberty in that i will quickly say sorry just to follow up on that it's been obviously it's been a catalyst uh, an accelerant but it's also been bottom up as well as top down so whatever your political opinions were before covid happened i you know i'm pretty sure they're a hell of a lot more pronounced in the same direction at this mm -hmm. period of time um, and then i'm going to give you the last word before we go to a short break do you think this has been the death knell of the Liberal Order? Well, I don't think there was a Liberal Order, so that's not very well touched on that question. But what about globalisation as an end state? Well, I think that globalisation... I don't like that term, but we're going to call that, but I think globalisation was finished by the time that... at least by 2015, by the time the Chinese were going down the road of made in China, um, uh, 2025. Um, I think what's interesting, if you look at it from the government, the politics at the government level, is just... I think they've been caught by surprise by the... By the politics, because I think they want, they thought there was going to be more of a contest, and were trying to balance out. Over the summer, they were clearly trying to balance out the health issue, the schools issue, which was pretty important to them, and the economy. Mm -hmm. And when you get to the autumn, through the second lockdown, they said, okay, we have to let the economy go, but we're going to keep going with, we're going to keep schools open. And they were trying to engage with multiple risks, including the long-term risk, the long-term educational. Um, risk. And actually, it's, I mean, I don't like this, don't get me wrong, but I think it's, it's as much majority public opinion that's pushed it into being that the only risks that count are short-term health risks, as it is um, the, 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 the actual desire of the government to keep it. Now, I'm not keep like that, and I'm not saying there aren't plenty of people in the government who, who might not like having, who, who might be quite keen on not having too much um, scrutiny of what they're doing, but I still think a lot of the, pro the decision about the priority that was given to competing risks actually came from the, from bottom up. So you're, you're not going to be a voice on this panel that says, these guys are getting carried away, overexcited perhaps, and actually the world as it was before will pretty much come back. You're, you're, not, you're not taking that view. No, I, but I think, the world that, I think the world that was there, if you look, if you stop the clock in like December 2019 or indeed in January 2020, it was the, the world was a very strange place already. I think that it was in Schumann. And, it, and I went back today and looked at and the speech that Angela Merkel gave at Davos this year compared to the one that she gave in January 2020. So just as the news of COVID is coming out of China, the one she gave in January 2020 is stranger and more disturbing than the one she gave this year. Mm. <laughs> there we go. Strange world that is even stranger. Um, I'm interested in the, the sense that there isn't any opposition to government policy, which is the only government policy is about COVID at the moment. So one of the things that to me is interesting is the amount of money that is being printed. No one seems to be at all bothered about that. Uh, normally, I mean, it's the Labour Party that is accused of wasting money. Um, I, I can assure you that if you're a small business like mine, I mean, we haven't done badly because grants appear in our account all the time. All the staff are on furlough. You get paid for it. It has to be paid somehow or the national debt has to be greatly increased. The present government has, during this period, got away with a huge an extravagant amount of borrowing without anyone asking any questions about whether that money's being well spent. The PP at the beginning was a scandal. 
41 billion spent on PPE. Many of it, people setting up companies <coughs> overnight, buying PPE themselves, and then selling it on to the state for much more. Mm. A, a strong opposition would have really been worried about that wastage. And no one has made any point about that at all. Let's actually uh, kick off with that, because I, I, my suspicion is that this panel will be more in favour of increased spending <laughs> than some other panels. Is there anyone here who would say that it's gone too far and that they are worried that we are spending too much, too centrally, and they want to see some more prudence? I'll give, you a, <laughs> I'll give you a half answer to okay, halfway. But the point, the, the, the point is, and this is where what happened in March of 2020 is really important, is, is because if the central banks hadn't been able to, to rescue the bond markets in March 2020, all these constraints would have come into play. And I think that the crisis would have played out quite differently if that hadn't happened. It was a real test just to see whether there was anything else that central banks could do to keep QE bond bubbles going. And the answer was, yes, that they can. Now, I'm of the view that in the end that it won't be sustainable, but I've got no idea when that will be. And I don't think anybody else has got any idea when will that will be. But my view of the debt now is, is, is like, it's just far, it's gone far too far to think that anything that could be done in terms of raising taxes is gonna make any difference. So I don't like it, and I think that it's long-term, medium, long-term, very problematic. But I honestly think that we're beyond the point of no return. Yeah. There's nothing that can be done now that will stabilise the situation. It will just be the contingencies of the bond markets will play themselves out at some specified time in the future. And the better the governments understand that that will happen, and they will need to then to have some response to that, so much the better. But I, 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 I think I'm not, I'm not saying I think it's a good thing that so much money can just about, like be like chucked around, chucked around. Particularly when you look at where some of it's gone, as you said. But I don't think there's a coherent policy response that can do anything about it any longer. Let me just bring in <coughs> on this question of uh, the media. The last question that came online: If the political conversation has gone quiet, the online conversation or the conversation between people has shifted as well, hasn't it, over this period? Is, do you think it's a good thing? Putting you on the spot there. I'm thinking. I think it's too simple to think of it in terms of good or bad. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I don't. I'm not going to sit here and can the mainstream media. I think it is it is prone to bubble think, but that's partly a function of the fact that most of the people who do it live in London. You know, no no offence to anybody who lives in London, but it's it's a different world. Um, that's you, you can't you can't avoid it when you hang out with people who are like you. Um, I do I do, however, think that some some of the most interesting people, some of the most interesting voices out there at the moment are anonymous Twitter accounts, and you know, random weird eighteen year olds on TikTok, you know, who are, who are often much more connected to, who who have a much sharper nose for the direction of travel. Um, than than is the case in the mainstream media. You know, my my sense. Um, I, I spend a lot of time. Just I, I've been very online for twenty years, and it's kind of an obsession. I'm probably too old to be to be right right where it's at anymore. But it's my observation that the mainstream media, quote unquote, will tend to pick up on a trend about eighteen months after it's being talked about by the anons. Um, and if you if you're paying attention, you can see things coming some distance off. They were they they were. They, they picked up on the lab leak theory long long before it happened. They were right about masking. They, the, the, not the frog people, forgive me, were, were right about all of this a long time, a long time before anybody else picked up on it. 
Um, so, you know, I wouldn't say so much that it's the mainstream media that are fragmenting into smaller pools of mainstream media, which may well plausibly be happening and probably wouldn't be such a bad thing. Um, but but if there's if there's an interesting sort of complication to the picture, it's in it's in fact factoring in the the anons and exactly the 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 effect that that's going to have on political discourse. Some of it is bad. Um, I mean, cancel culture isn't 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 unique to either the left or the right. It's a function of being able to gather in large mobs and shout at people. And that's just something the internet does, and it doesn't matter what your political leaning is. If you can find other people to gather in a mob with and, and use that use that mob power to shout at people, then then you have a cancel mob. Mm. Um, so that's so, so that's possibly a downside of it. But on the other hand, um, you know, if you have a lot of very nerdy, very obsessive people who are interested in a particular subject, they will gather in little anonymous Twitter groups and be right about things. You just have to find them and listen. So you know, there are if you're if you're willing to go spelunking on the internet, I'd say that, you know there's there's plenty to be found. Hmm. But you, but there's a there's a very different skill set that you need to develop in order to be able to navigate that without just losing your marbles completely or getting or ending up with a tinfoil hat on. Um, okay. I, so, thank you, Mary. So that's yeah, the media. Um, it's complicated. I'm going to take a question from one of our online audience now. Um, the name was whispered in my ear, and I confess I have already forgotten it. Hi, um, I'm just going to say it because it looks as if it's frozen. But um, what interests me is the lack of empowerment in terms of our own individual health and how there's been a call to clap on the doorstep, but not to get healthy or engage with our own health destiny in an empowering way. And I just wonder what people think about that. That's a huge uh, topic. Um, I think we should address it uh, in some of the time. I, <laughs> I won't come to Aris on that then. Um, would anyone like to pick up on that? Because this is something that, you know, animates people enormously. The, the sense that somehow, whether it's the vaccine program or the kind of general intrusion of government thinking into your own personal health decisions, some people are very upset about it. And then on the other side, some people are enormously um, pro it and very angry about anyone who dissents from it. Um, does anyone have thoughts about the, the sort of dominance of public health in our private health decisions? While the panel thinks about it, let's take another question. <laughs> there one in, in the audience. Let's take a couple. Yes, go ahead. Um, yeah, sorry, Angus, by the way. Um, Hi, Angus. I was really struck by Mary's initial, um, Mary's initial comments on individual liberty and how, when you look at sort of Britain, calls for liberty in the abstract have kind of fallen completely flat. Um, and I think there's a temptation to take the old sort of Hobbesian line of oh, security, liberty without security is no liberty at all. But then I was also struck as Mary continued to talk and I wanted to ask the panel how important faith has been as, I'm, I'm not religious, but how important, and when Mary spoke about not being able to go to her church during lockdown, it was very, very powerful. And ultimately, if me, someone without faith, I didn't feel, I felt sort of peer pressure, but if I wanted to see what gives me meaning, friends in the second or third lockdown, I could without being arrested, let's you know, be real. But there was such a more fundamental and profound barrier in terms of liberty for people of faith during the lockdowns. And I wondered if the panel had any thoughts on that divide that may emerge. Yes, great, we'll address that. Let's get a couple of other um, thoughts. We've got Sue there in the audience. 
I'm just interested in this um, division between left and right and has that been completely redrawn? So a lot of people that have benefited from lockdown in the public sector who've been supported um, are, are, are not working class, they're middle class. And we've got this whole kind of different class of people who work for business, who, who have had to work through it. Uh, I'm one of them, uh, who, who has not been supported at all. And I would have expected the Conservative Party in power to support somebody who runs their own small business. Has And, and obviously there's the border thing where you know we're fine for you to come and work here and 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 do good, good stuff for us for our country but we don't want you to go and bury your your mum in india ever uh, so this 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 paradox between those those two people uh, two sets of people who are now contradicting themselves um ethically okay left and right do we have a inversion um, is there another question from the room? We have Jack over here, if we can get a microphone to him. Um, it seems to me that uh, if you look at who is most pro-lockdown, it's older generations, it's boomers, basically. Um, and you see in the rest of politics as well, um, kind of boomerization is causing problems in planning, opposition to house building, etc. So how far do we think, this is kind of a broader question, how far do we think that the boomerization of politics as a kind of uh, demographic issue is causing problems and will cause problems into the future as well? Can I? Aris. Hi, Jack. <clears throat> um, I, I think I take issue with that. I think, I think a lot of the kind of right liberal, you know, my freedoms discourse is boomerized. It's coming from this kind of telegraph boomer uh, ideas of, you know, individual liberty and the roast beef of old England and so on. And it's, it's because of this discourse that we've been trapped in this kind of like endless uh, kind of middle ground, you know, like neither lockdown briefly and it's all over or completely, you know, open like Sweden, but in this kind of, you know, constant, uh, you know, back and forth that never ends. So I think this, you know, I'm, I'm extremely hostile to the eternal boomer. I'm, it's, uh, it's... Just wait. <laughs> yeah. But I think, I think the whole point is, like, this leads us to the end of this kind of boomer. Like, the world, we, we live in a world shaped by boomers, right? The world we live in is the boomer consensus. And this unpleasant and awkward and inconvenient, though it is, is shuffling it, you know, it's like the it's like the dignitas of the kind of boomer consensus, right? Like it's 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 the blow it's the shot to the head of this dying order. And I think it has to be recognized for that. Do you foresee strife between those groups? I mean, as we now come back into something closer to normal, do you think all of that pent up energy will come out in clashes? Uh, yes, but I think that yes, but I think that it's complicated by the fact that the question of interests and whose interests have been hurt and whose interests have basically been supported has got all kinds of other dimensions that cut across it, including people's beliefs, including I think whether people are extroverted or introverted and how much they can cope with solitude and these questions that that can't really be easily represented in our politics. So I think that the kind of conflicts that result might be quite, what might actually be really quite messy and, and very difficult to, to structure within our democratic politics. Aris, do you foresee conflict? Always. Uh, <laughs> I mean, is, it, I'm, is this one one of those things where you would not welcome the uh, 
the pandemic, if maybe it's been the death knell of liberalism and it's helped usher in a new world order, are you worried that there might actually be conflict between groups of people um, that could be no, scary? No, no, I'm not worried about it. I, I think the whole point is that we've, through COVID, accelerated by COVID, we've just escaped this stultifying period of just a stasis lasting for 30, 40 years, right? The depoliticization of everything. And everything is suddenly repoliticized. Like, it's not purely due to COVID, but it's been accelerated by that. Um, like, to a degree, we need more political conflict because we need people to actually realize there are alternatives and that those alternative futures, alternative visions are within our grasp if we take it, right? And yeah, of course we're going to disagree. And obviously on this panel we'll have our own chosen direction for which way we should go. And it's, you know... So you're animated by yeah, the absolutely. sense of politics yeah. returned. Yeah. And what would it take for you to regret like, to give an, Sorry, to give an example... <laughs> To give an example, like when Helen was talking about the beginning of COVID, like there was there was an extraordinary kind of public acceptance of of being situated in history, if that makes sense, of this period of like trial and torment and you know all coming together, and you know Britain being Britain, it was all framed in this kind of like pseudo World War Two kind of conceptual framework, right? But at the same time, there is this this kind of yearning for this you know this grand greater narrative, the return of history in some form or another. And no one is entirely sure what that is or what that means, and yet I think that's a fundamentally good and optimistic development. Mary, I'm going to let you come in there. Um, do you think that this sort of... If, if everything's suddenly up for grabs and all the cards have been thrown up in the air, uh, maybe it's both an exciting moment, which could lead to a better world, but also a perilous moment, because... If they fall the wrong way, there's lots of revolutionaries have sounded a bit like Aris, Indeed. saying smash it all down, bring in the new world order, and then have been a bit had a bit of buyer's remorse when it arrived. <laughs> Are you worried at all about that, that we can get excited about a new world order, but it could go horribly wrong? The question that interests me is what the what is not so much a new political world order as the new moral order. Um, that's the I mean, we've talked a bit around the question of faith over the course of this panel and the, the sense of abandonment from the churches, the, the churches locked and empty and cold, and the sense of, you know, where, where have the believers gone? You know, what were they doing? And I mean, it's not as though, it's not as though Christian people were doing nothing. Um, but, and in the, in the meantime, you know, simultaneously, we've had this highly mediated, highly um, elite-supported outbreak of, you know, what just smells very strongly of religious piety to me, you know, in the form of the Black Lives Matters, Black Lives Matter riots and everything which has fallen out of that, you know, which is perhaps, I, I'm not convinced that it's exactly a religious faith, but it's something very religious faith-like. Um, and it's something, and, and it's also very strongly supported by by fairly influential political people, and it has it, it has all the trappings of you know seeking to install itself, if you like, as an integrated moral and political order. Um, you know, I, I follow a number of Catholic political thinkers um, who are who, who seek to bring about you know Catholic integralism, which is to say an integrated you know 
moral and political order under the Catholic Church. I see no realistic prospect of that happening either in Britain or the United States, for example. But um, I, it's an interesting idea. But, I, but at the moment, the foremost candidate for for actually being able to implement some kind of an integrated moral and political order is is the people who are gathering under whatever you want to call that religious faith-like thing which broke out last summer and is now being instituted at a political level um, through via HR departments and other you know similar institutions throughout throughout the world. Um, I don't think the prognosis for that moral order is is very good. It's not very good at replicating itself. It doesn't have much of a vision for the future, and it doesn't have much in the way of bringing people together and encouraging people to work together rather than picking holes in each other's um, worldviews. But it's it's what we have at the moment. And what interests me is where that's going to go next. You know, is it going to implode and turn into something more substantive that's able to replicate itself? Is it going to is it, is it all just going to disintegrate into a war of all against? I don't know the answer to that, but that's that. That's the moment I feel that we're in. You know, mm. if we're if we're talking about you know how are the cards going to fall? In the short term, I think um, get ready for a summer of hate. I think that's where we're going. <laughs> I don't think that's long term, Aris, but I think that we haven't. You know, I said to Sally in the conversation, the thing I missed most in lockdown was the laughter of strangers. I think I was being a bit Panglossian because I've, <laughs> I've now tuned in to the sound of strangers fighting. I mean, that's... So if you look at the countries that were advanced in, in lockdown, um, Israel was well ahead, and the first thing that happened on the day that they lifted lockdown was the first fighting between Israelis and Palestinians since 1965, you know, civic disorder. It's not really reported in America, but there's huge levels of violence going on um, in, in cities. Um, so I think that as lockdown is lifted, there's going to be an, an initial base. Did you see what happened in Northern Ireland? You know, uh, that, that, that was also quite unprecedented in terms of its violence. So I'm just saying to everybody, get ready this summer when the weather gets better. <laughs> we're, we're not really used to living together. And then Mary's point kicks in. The lack of civic association and relationship will lead to uh, people not really being able to, mm. to to function in a civic manner in public, and that's going to manifest itself in violence. I went to the England game um, on Friday night, and and I was grateful that we didn't win. Um, <laughs> in terms of the Scottish presence, that could have got ugly, but in fact they felt vindicated and we felt wretched so um, it kind of worked in terms of civic in terms of civic peace morris i'm gonna have i'm gonna oh dear i'm gonna stop <laughs> oh, just getting to the getting we to only the we only have uh, four and a half minutes oh. left uh, so i just want um to give these guys a chance sure. to have some kind of concluding thought we've 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 gone in a lot of directions but helen what stands out to you um as we draw this to a close well, I think two things. One of them is is that the reason why there has to, in the end, be a politics out of this is, is because basically people have different attitudes towards life and death. And there isn't any way around that. And that has come out very clearly um, through, the, through the experience. And it isn't just a question about different interests. And I'm not trying for the moment to minimise the people who have been hurt the most by this lockdown, whether it's by being shut out of the support system or, in my view, the st students and, 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 and children. Um, 
So we have to accept that we will all collectively disagree about these kind of questions. And there has to be some way, I think, in, in democratic politics for allowing that to be articulated. But my second thought is really goes back to what I said before about the fact that I do think we should pay a little bit more attention to what was going on before this started and that governments had already committed to something that was actually revolutionary, which is to basically get rid of carbon emissions by 2015. I don't think that people have begun to get their heads around what happened in terms of those commitments in 2019 before we had the pandemic upon us. And that is what we're going to end up actually with. And I think in the scheme when we look back in 10 years time it's going to be the attempt to do this about which i'm rather skeptical that that is going to be the defining politics of this decade and that's going to make people angry no doubt as well um mary a final thought i've said some gloomy things over the course of this evening i wanted to finish on a, on a note of optimism i've mentioned my daughter once or twice and how depressed she was in the first lockdown over that the summer after lockdown i took her away on holiday to visit a friend of mine who has three children, uh, a big noisy family, absolute chaos. Um, we stayed with them for a week. And when we got there, she hadn't seen another child for months. And she was an absolute nightmare to be around. Um, I, 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 just, I was constantly on edge because she, she didn't know how to relate. She couldn't share her toys. She, she, threw, threw, she had a meltdown at the slightest thing. She just didn't know how to engage and you know, have give and take with another child. By the end of the week, she was just a different child. You know, she'd, she'd settled in, she'd relaxed, she was just playing normally. She'd, she'd gone back to normal again. And I was watching her bouncing on the trampoline on Sunday afternoon with two children who she'd only just met and just playing completely normally and, th and just thought, and, and just thought back to this time last year when I was watching her having this brittle, fragile, anxious little person who'd come out of this period of bizarre isolation and deep depression as a three-year-old and just thought, actually, no, Children are very resilient. People are very resilient. So, you know, at the interpersonal level, I do still believe that we'll be okay. I don't know quite how we're going to come out of this politically, but interpersonally, I think if we we can be okay. So, if she if she can get better, if she can so if she can, can recover, so can we. Um, Aris, it's the end of the liberal world order. Yeah, it's the heralding in of a new era. Yeah. No, just picking up on the Morris's point about you know summer of violence. You know, such things attend the end of empires. Uh, if we if we if we remember the beginning of the COVID story, it was meant to be China's Chernobyl moment, right? But it was America's actually. We saw that you know they did not function. They couldn't handle it, and it was. It's the beginning of the end of this kind of um, consensus that governs you know, the liberal world order that is fundamentally a euphemism for you know, American imperial dominance. We are provincial subjects of a dying empire. And um, even, even Mary's kind of, you know, like anti-BLM kind of thoughts, that's, that's an indication of, you know, provincial disengagement with the politics of the, of the metropole. Right, and that's that's something that will continue to last over the. Morris, I'm, in, I'm, I'm into it. I'm into it. <laughs> we're, so we're in it. We're in, like we are in the early stages of this, you know, kind of huge historical shift. Um, I'm going to have to. Draw, I'm going to let you have your moment, but we have to draw things formally to a, a close because we are very strict about timings um, here. So may I say thank you so much uh, to everybody for coming. 
those people who came in person. Thank you so much to everyone who tuned in online. We were really delighted that you did that. Um, we will be trying to do more of these. And in fact, we can do bigger ones, hopefully, once the restrictions are less onerous. Um, and uh, we're really excited to gather people together and exchange ideas in a normal human way. And those of you who are still able to bear with us, I'm going to leave the last word to Lord Glassman. Yeah, so as we, <laughs> as we liberate ourselves from, from American subjugation, we, we also need to liberate ourselves from a certain kind of American puritanism. I think this is maybe what, what's, going, what's going on here, because it's not a new religion, this thing, because these people have no conception of their own sin. They just think other people are sinful. And, and thank goodness the religion in our country still has some conception that, that we might be in error. So I leave that as a note of optimism. <laughs> thank you, Morris. Thank you, Helen. Thank you, Mary. Thank you, Alex. <laughs> See you next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.